Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us again in the Gospel of John today, chapter 11. We've been in chapter 1 for six weeks, and today we make our way to chapter 11. We are considering the 12 disciples, and today we come to the seventh in our list of 12, uh, the man called Thomas. There are many things we hope to say about Thomas today that I hope will be helpful. I trust that you know a little bit about him. Today you'll hopefully learn a little bit more about him, but I'm far less interested in your knowledge of Thomas than I am your knowledge of the Savior that Thomas loved. And so we will consider the Savior most. We are using Thomas as a platform for us to fully and more completely understand the life of Christ. So I want to consider with you, uh, just I'm going to read a paragraph to help us introduce us to his name, and uh, that will springboard us to a few facts about Thomas. So we begin in John chapter 11, verse 11. John 11, 11. Jesus is dealing with the death of his friend Lazarus in John 11, one of the great chapters in the New Testament. Verse 11 begins, After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So here we have uh, an introduction to the man called Thomas. A few facts about Thomas that we can share with you. He is here called the twin. In fact, uh, the Greek word in the King James is supplied or transliterated. It is the word didymus. Didymus, we'll come to that in a moment. But uh, we're uncertain as to whether or not he went by the name Thomas or was often just simply called Didymus because Thomas actually translates into Greek as Didymus. Thomas is an Aramaic name, means the twin. So if you have a son named Thomas, you can just start calling him twin or Twinkie or something like that. Thomas just means twin. Or maybe you show off your Greek and you start calling him Didymus because that also means twin. Thomas is a twin. You say, well, who is his twin? God alone knows. The Bible never tells us, so we don't have that information. In the listing of disciples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the book of Acts, there are four lists, as we've said. Thomas' name is either the seventh name or the eighth name in each of the four lists. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in the book of Acts, there is not one further reference to Thomas. The only gospel that deals with Thomas at all, beyond just telling us his name, is John, which has been the case for the most part uh, as we have studied these disciples. Today we come to the seventh disciple, and John has said more about those seven disciples then Matthew, Mark, Luke, or the book of Acts has said about those disciples. Were it not for the gospel of John, we'd know virtually nothing about these disciples. Now that will change next week. So this is a commercial. Next week. Next week we cover Matthew, also called Levi. And he wrote a gospel. So we're going to spend a lot of time outside the gospel of John next week. We're going to read Matthew's very own words. But so far, through seven names, John has been the most help to us to understand these men. Having said that, we want to circle back, if I might. The word Thomas means twin. Didymus is the Greek transliteration of that. Uh, John writes primarily to a Greek audience. So he takes these Hebrew phrases like Thomas. 
Hebrew name like Thomas and gives it the Greek understanding because he's writing to Greeks. He wants these Greek speakers to understand that name. And it means twin. We learn a little bit about Thomas by virtue of that. He is obviously, uh, he has some sibling that perhaps is known. Uh, if, you, if, you have a, if you have an unknown twin, nobody knows you're a twin. You don't usually walk around and talk about the fact that you're a twin. In fact, you may know some people that you've known for quite a long time, and all of a sudden you came upon this eureka moment. Hey, you, you mean you're a twin? Yes, that's right. One of our uh, sons-in-law is, in fact, a twin. So we're very familiar with the circumstance. We're thankful for this circumstance. Thomas is also called the twin. Now you might say, well, I thought his uh, nickname was Doubting Thomas. <laughs> well, in fact, it is. Except that's not in the Bible. That's not the, the Bible never nicknames Thomas Doubting Thomas. That is the work of preachers. The reason you associate Thomas with doubting is in part because of the circumstance we're going to consider in John 20 in a minute. But for the most part, preachers have gone to seed on that. And I think they've done a disservice to Thomas uh, for reasons that I, that I hope will become obvious in a moment. I want to suggest to you that Thomas is no more a doubter than any of the rest of us. And I, for one, don't like being called Doubting Greg. <laughs> and I bet you don't like the name Doubting either. So I'm not a big fan of Doubting Thomas and making a big deal out of that beyond the normal deal that we have to contend with. We are all, in some respects, doubters. Having said that, I want to try to make two applications. There are four, if you will, phrases that are attributed to Thomas in the Gospel of John. Those four phrases will be our focus this morning. The first is found here in John 11, and there will be another one in a moment in John 14. John 11, a very familiar uh, paragraph because the death of Lazarus is no small thing. If you've been around church and read the Bible much at all, the miracle of Lazarus' resurrection is indeed a familiar story. Uh, perhaps second to that in the Gospel of John is the 14th chapter where Jesus talks about the fact that he's going away to prepare a place. My father's house are many mansions, and if I go to prepare a place there, you shall come to be with me. And as we shall see, Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How shall we know? We'll consider that passage in John 14. And then in John 20, you'll remember Jesus makes an appearance to his disciples uh, in the upper room. They are gathered after his death and his announced resurrection. A few days later, and Jesus appears to the disciples. They are in a locked room. And Jesus appears in the room without coming through the door. And he appears there to those disciples, but there are only 10 of them. Of course, Judas has already died by means of suicide. And Thomas is missing. He's not there. The Bible doesn't tell us why he's not there, but he's not there. So these 10 men all see Jesus. He appears to them, and they become, they go from disconsolate, discouraged, depressed, overwhelmed by the magnitude of the loss of their, their Savior, their leader, and they still don't understand this whole thing of resurrection. None of, that, none of that becomes clear until Pentecost. Until Acts chapter 2, none of this becomes clear to these guys. So these 10 men all of a sudden are buoyed, as you would expect. We've seen the Lord. We've seen the Savior. They report this to Thomas. And you'll remember Thomas famously says, until I can stick my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side, I will not believe it. Okay? That says more about Thomas's personality than it says about his faith, in my judgment. But having said that, we'll consider the Gospel of John and those passages specifically. John 11, John 14, John 20. So let's start in John 11. I want to make two applications this morning that I hope will help us to think about Thomas's life and then by means of his life to think about our own. I want you to note, first of all, that Thomas helps us in John 11 to see the true cost of following 
Jesus, the true cost of following Jesus. Let me start before we read again by challenging you. We, uh, we live in a day where in the Western world, particularly the United States, particularly in the Southern United States, particularly in Mississippi, per capita, more people attend church in Mississippi uh, than in any state in America. So if you measure per capita numbers, Mississippi is the most religious church attending state in America. That's a good thing, by the way. And it ought to be higher. And we ought not to be satisfied until it is higher, much higher. So let us continue to labor. Having said that, we live in a culture, accordingly, that believes in Jesus. Now, obviously, increasingly, there are more and more people who don't. But my point is that there are people who know information about Jesus. They know information about his coming, his death, burial, resurrection. They know the story. They know the plot. They know what we're doing. You go to church, you sing, you pray, you listen to sermons, some long, some not so long, some extremely long, all of them great. Just seeing if you're staying awake. They know the drill. They know what happens when you do this and that. They know how to participate, at least marginally. But I wonder, is that really the impact that God wants his son to have on your life? Did God send his son so you'd know his story and become marginally impressed? And practice a marginal discipleship. And be, for the most part, religious. But for the most part, moral. Did God really send his son? So you just be touched by Jesus by the grandeur or magnitude of the story, but really not changed. Well, I'll tell you, Thomas would disagree with that viewpoint. He said, well, how do you know? Well, that's, that's going to require us to understand what's going on. Let's start in John 11. Thomas helps us to see the true cost of following Jesus. Verse 11. After saying these things, he said to him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was just sleeping. Jesus told them plainly, okay, I'm going to stop beating around the bush here. Lazarus has died and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, Didymus, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now let's focus on that phrase. Let us also go that we may die with him. Now, I, I, want, I want to assume that you're a, a thoroughgoing Bible student, but I recognize that some are not. So let me give you a little understanding. By the time we get to the 13th chapter of John, and we are now in the 11th chapter, the 13th chapter of John, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's hours from dying. John spends 12 chapters, and we're in the 11th chapter. He spends 12 chapters showing us how Jesus' life takes him to Jerusalem. The whole purpose of John's gospel is to get Jesus to Jerusalem. Why, you say? Because the whole purpose of Jesus' coming is to die. And a prophet does not die outside of Jerusalem. He has to go to Jerusalem. 
Prophets die in the city. They don't die in the country where nobody watches them or sees them, where their deaths have no meaning and so forth. So the whole purpose of John's gospel is to get Jesus to the crucifixion, which has to be in Jerusalem, which has to involve animosity between Jesus and the religious leaders who are going to trump up the charges against him and take him before the Romans and go through all of that uh, dog and pony show that results ultimately in his death. That's the whole purpose of John's gospel. So in the 13th chapter of John, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, celebrates the Lord's Supper, the picture we use here. The, that's not the actual picture, by the way. Several errors in that picture, but that's the artist's rendition, so we'll go with that. So all of that occurs in John 13. John 14, Jesus begins to teach. I'm the way, the truth, the life. John 15, I'm the vine, the branches. John 16, he tells them about the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's necessary for me to go. If it's better for you that I go so the Holy Spirit can come and so forth, be all of that. John 17 is Jesus in the garden and the high priestly prayer. John 18, Jesus is crucified. So the whole purpose of John's gospel is to get Jesus to Jerusalem, and we're one chapter away from Jesus being in Jerusalem. So how does Jesus get to Jerusalem the last time? What is the precipitating event that brings Jesus to Jerusalem? Why does Jesus have to come to Jerusalem? Jesus has done his ministry in Galilee and occasionally come to Jerusalem for Passover and other celebrations, but he, he lives in Galilee. He's, he lives up north. Jerusalem is in the south. Why would he come to the city? Why did he come this time? The answer is the death of Lazarus. Lazarus lives in Bethany, which is two miles from Jerusalem. They are his friends. Why does Jesus have to go and take care of Lazarus? Because Lazarus has died. Why is that necessary? Because it is the, the event that brings Jesus out of Galilee into Jerusalem. So knowing that, they're in Galilee, and they get word that Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha send word. Your friend is sick. Come, help us. And he's had this whole conversation in John 11, Jesus interacting with Mary and Martha about their brother and so forth. And in the process, he has to tell his disciples, we're going to go to Bethany. Well, there's a problem with that because they have experienced, these disciples, for the last three years of walking around with Jesus, they have experienced the animosity between Jesus and the chief priests and religious leaders in Jerusalem. So in their minds, you should stay out of Jerusalem. You should not go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is dangerous. Jerusalem is where people will hurt you. There's a contract out on you. Don't go to Jerusalem. Just turn back one chapter to chapter 10, verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. That's the preceding fall. It's, it's, it's spring. John 11 is spring, but, but John 10 is fall, the preceding fall. The Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus said, I've told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you are not of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. That's about as plain and blunt and the declaration of a claim to being the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, as he could have ever made. To which then, verse 31, the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus can't come to Jerusalem without being afraid for his life, except he's not. But Thomas is. Thomas is. So that brings us back to John 11. Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. For your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Because if he goes, he's going to die. 
and we're his followers. So what are we going to do? I would ask you that today. What do you think it means to be a follower of Christ? There's virtually no relationship in our lives that requires us to die. We would die for our family. And if we wouldn't, we would, admit, we would not admit it. So let's don't admit it, okay? We would die for our family. You might die for a close friend. You might even die for your pastor. If you wouldn't, you wouldn't admit that either. So we'll go along with that. But there's virtually no one else you would die for. Because the cost is just too high. Why should you die for him, for her, for them, for those? Are they worth it? Do they deserve it? Have they earned it? Is there a depth of relationship that permits you to make such a sacrifice? The answer is, for the most part, no. We, we exist with all these relationships that are meaningful, precious treasures, admittedly so, yes, but to raise to the level of, I would die for you, very few of those. So what does Thomas mean by this phrase? Let us go to Jerusalem so that we too can die. Because Thomas understands that following Jesus is costly. We have reduced following Jesus to just believing facts, occasional church, give a little money, pray a few prayers, have a little hope when it seems hopeless. We're sort of shuffling cards. We're, we're kind of moving shells around with peas under them. We're kind of just deciding whether or not all this has any real validity and has any real substance and is actually worth giving our lives to. We want to argue or fuss about superficial things. We get caught up in minutiae. We get caught up in quarrels. We get caught up in worldliness and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and all of the materialism that's before us. We get caught up in, in all the affairs of life and so forth. We get caught up in all of this and we say, that's why I'm alive. To which Thomas says, no, that's not why you're alive. You're alive to be a disciple of Christ. That's why you're alive. And if your leader takes you to Jerusalem, you go. And if your leader says, we're going to go down there because that's where we die, then let's go. We signed up. Let's go. We're going to die. Let's go with him. Because just like he dies, we're going to die. Because we are his. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is plain in the scripture. Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 9, both detail this same instance. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus teaching his disciples, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is pretty clear. He calls us to absolute devotion. He calls us to great courage. And Thomas demonstrates both in John chapter 11. He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. Let us also go and let us die with him. I would ask you, is that a summary of your faith? Is that the way you process your faith? Is faith that meaningful to you? That you would die for your faith? That you'd be so faithful as to die in order to keep it, in order to demonstrate it? Do you believe anything? so firmly you'd die for it. That's the nature of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Thomas illustrates 
the true cost of following Jesus. It challenges us, does it not? Because we have been duped by our culture. We have been duped to believe that somehow following Jesus is just some sort of little passive thing. You get a little dose of religion. You get a real little dose of Jesus. And it doesn't really change your life. So much to say. There's a second thing. Thomas demonstrates the truth of genuine saving faith. Thomas' life demonstrates the truth of genuine saving faith. Now we have to make a couple of assumptions today, and we're going to make them, but I think they're informed assumptions. I hope they are. You'll be the judge, I suspect. We've seen already in John chapter 11 that Thomas understands that discipleship following Christ, real faith, requires going to die with him. Make no mistake about it. Thomas is not a man of shallow faith. He's a man of real faith, of, if you will, substantial faith. But short of the Holy Spirit, we don't know exactly when these men are actually converted born again. We don't know that for a fact. We know they are by Pentecost, but having said that, he demonstrates the truth of real saving faith. So we have read John 11. Let's move ahead to John 14, if you would. John 14. Again, we meet this interaction between Jesus and Thomas. Jesus is in the upper room. He's teaching. He's just celebrated the Lord's Supper. In John 13, he's washed the disciples' feet. Now we're in John 14, and Jesus is teaching his disciples. So he, he spends several, several, several minutes after the Lord's Supper, after the foot washing, in order to teach his disciples. And this is what he teaches them. Verse 1, very familiar words. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Thomas helps us to understand what real or genuine saving faith is. Saving faith is faith that helps us to see beyond what we can see and believe it. In this case, Jesus is teaching his disciples, I am going away. I'm going away to a place you've never seen, and I'm going there to work on your behalf. I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be. I'm going to... Prepare your eternal life, your eternal place. I'm going to do that so that where I am, you may be. And you know the way to which Thomas says, Lord, I'm not sure I do. In other words, Thomas is in process. Remember in John 11, let's go to Jerusalem and die with him. He knows that the Savior is going to die. The rabbi is going to die. The teacher is going to die in John 11. He knows that. But there's no understanding of resurrection. There's no understanding of eternal life. There's just martyrdom. John 11. Let's go to Jerusalem and die with him. He's the man. He's the cause. He's worth it. Let's go die. 
John 14, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and I go to prepare a place for you so that you can come and be with me. Thomas says, we don't know the way. We don't know the way. It's, you're, you're talking in a, in, a, in a way that's like a riddle. We don't understand what you mean. We don't, we don't get it. In other words, there's no understanding of, of, of anything beyond death, martyrdom. You're just going to die. You're just going to die. Beyond that, it's, it's all just opaque. It's all just fuzzy. We don't get it. We don't know how to go there. We don't, Jesus brings clarity to Thomas. Thomas is the means whereby John, we are, we are so indebted to the gospel of John to help us to, with this. Let me just give you an illustration. It's possible that when, when you tell a story about someone, in, in literary terms, they talk about leaving them a, a flat character, sort of a name, rank, and serial, serial number. My, my name is Greg. I'm married. I have children, grandchildren. That's all you know. That's flat. You don't know anything about me. You don't know anything about my life. You don't know anything about my interactions. You don't know anything about me. But, but, but if, if, if in literature, if you, can, if you can bring life or body, if you will, if you can bring drama to that person's life, you can show those things, all of a sudden that, play, that person becomes more than just a flat character. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that the seventh or eighth disciple is a man named Thomas. Flat. John tells us that he's an entirely different man altogether. We're so indebted to John. By the way, that's why God helps us, serves us with more than one gospel. Because John saw things and kept things that Matthew didn't, and the reverse is also true. What do we see here? We see the maturing, the growing, the stretching, the training of the man called Thomas and the other disciples by means of his questioning. Thomas served the disciples by asking these questions, by raising the flag and saying, tell me what that means. I, I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to go where you're going. I don't get that. Maybe you're here today and you don't understand. Maybe you're shallow or maybe don't even have saving faith. I mean, you believe that there was a man named Jesus. You know that he came and he lived and died and had disciples. And one of them was named Thomas. To which I'd say, well, that, that will get you right in the middle of hell. That's not going to save you from your sins. The fact that you know information is not life-changing. In this case, Thomas is helping us to understand the nature of true saving faith. Read again what he says in John 14. Jesus said in verse 6, I am the way. You don't know the way. I am the way. The truth and the life. I am the way. If you know me, you know the Father. I have shown you the Father. Look at me. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen him. He's explaining the nature of true saving faith. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is God? Do you believe, therefore, that Jesus has authority over your life, that is the authority to determine whether or not you go to heaven or hell? Is Jesus absolutely Lord and Savior? Or is Jesus just some religious character that you have identified with for whatever reasons that make sense to you? Do you understand the difference between simply believing information and actually committing your way and being willing to go and die for this one who promised you more than death, but life eternal beyond death? Do you believe that Jesus is the one who can raise the dead as he does with Lazarus in the company of Thomas, as he does here in John 14, as he's going to, in, in a matter of hours, be crucified and himself die? Do you believe that this is the one who can, can truly guarantee your eternal life? This is a fair question, and Thomas is very much in process. There's one more chapter 
If you will, there's one more snapshot of Thomas's life that tells you where he ends up. Let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Verse 19. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has appeared to some of the women, but he has not appeared to the disciples until verse 19 of John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, we know that to be Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, verse 24, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, and this is where he famously is called the doubter. Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We don't know a lot about Thomas's personality. In fact, we know virtually nothing. But we can make some, perhaps, judgments, assumptions. Maybe you're here today, and you're a lot like Thomas, a guy who wants to see it before he believes it. Who needs more proof? You, you, need, you need something. Now, what's interesting here about Thomas, he's one of the 12. He's walked with Jesus for more than three years. By the way, we know that Jesus' public ministry with these men is three years because there are three visits to Jerusalem for Passover. Passover occurs once a year. So, why do we say Jesus had a public ministry of three years? Because there are three Passover visits recorded in the Gospels. Jesus had a ministry of three years because of that. So Thomas is a guy who's been with Jesus for three years, and he's heard Jesus teach, 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 teach. He's seen Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle. Thomas is in the Gospel of John. John records seven miracles, water to wine, raising Lazarus, the resurrection, uh, the loaves and fishes, etc. John, the whole purpose of John's Gospel is to show proof to unbelievers that Jesus is Messiah. And Thomas is an eyewitness to every single one of those. Every single one of those. And yet here we find him in John 20, and he says, I will not believe in the resurrection. I believe that Jesus is the great teacher. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, whatever that is. I believe that Jesus is Messiah, whatever that is. I believe in all of that, but I don't believe in resurrection. Until I can put my fingers in his hands, until I can thrust my hand into his wounded side, I will not believe in resurrection. Well, friend, if you don't believe in resurrection, then I would ask you, what's the point? If your faith will not deliver you beyond death, if you don't believe in eternal life beyond death, then what's the point? Which is exactly what the world is saying today, isn't it? They're saying, look, we don't buy that. 
We don't buy that, that somehow eternal life, A, is possible. And if it is possible, that it requires me to somehow be willing to give myself to forfeit everything in this world in order to gain the next, to give up my ambitions, to to give up my desires, to give up my dreams, to give up my affections, to, to give up perhaps some toxic behavior, toxic thoughts, or toxic emotions, or toxic bitterness, toxic relationships, to give up all of that and then give my life to Christ more fully. I don't need that because I'm going to get eternal life in spite of that. I'm going to be treated as a good man or a good woman, even though I have all this toxic, you know the word, poison in my life. Go with that. I've got all these troubles. I've got all these things. But you know, when you, when you weigh it all out, the good outweighs the bad. And so in the scales of justice, my life's going to turn out all right. The only problem, friend, is you're guilty. You're guilty. You got dirt. You got, you got trash in your life. And that's going to hinder you from ever being counted as good. The Bible tells us plainly, Romans 3.10, there is none good, not in the scales of God. You can be good compared to me. Whoop-dee-doo. But you're not good compared to God. God is holy and requires holiness of his people. And the only way you're going to get holiness is if God gives it to you. It's imputed to you. It's credited to you. It's accounted to you. And the only way that accounting occurs is when you embrace him, when you you trust him. Susan and I got married four decades plus ago. I had no money. She had a few hundred dollars. The day we married, I got every bit of it. Is it possible to have a relationship? That by means of that relationship, you get what you never earned. So, what do we get when we come to Christ? You say, well, we get heaven. That's right. We get eternal life. That's right. You get a place that Jesus prepares for us. That's right. You get right standing with God. You get forgiveness from God. That's right. You get that and a long list of other stuff. All good, all rich, all right, all true. But how do you get that? You get that by believing. Not just in a flat Jesus. But in a Jesus like Thomas describes. Don't miss it. Verse 27, John 20. Then he said to Thomas... Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it at my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, and this is perhaps the greatest declaration of what saving faith is that you will find in the scripture. Not flowery, not long, not radical. In terms of its language, very simple, very straightforward. But if this is not your declaration, then you are not a Christian. If this is not your declaration, 
no matter how many times a preacher stands over your casket and says you're in heaven, you're not. No matter how much you think that you're religious enough, if this is not your declaration, you're not religious enough. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus is God. Jesus came to declare God, not simply to announce God, but to declare God, to show God, and to invite us to come to God, and then to be the means, if you will, the doorway, the way, the truth, the life, by whom you can reach God. You can come to God. You can come to God by means of this relationship with his son. If you will deny self, if you will take up your cross daily and follow him, follow him to Jerusalem if need be, and die in Jerusalem if need be. Follow him. He is the way, the way, the only way, the true way, the only one who's gone to the Father to prepare a place for you, for me, for us, for others like us. He is the only one. By means of this relationship, you too can have eternal life. But apart from this relationship, you will never have eternal life, no matter how good a game you talk. Jesus had many kind and loving things to say to sinners in the Bible. Woman caught in adultery, woman at the well, Zacchaeus. I mean, we could go on and on and on. Jesus constantly reaching out to people who are sinners, who are broken and willing to confess their sin and their need for forgiveness and need for redemption. I hope today you're here and you hear that message from God, that his son came to be kind, to be loving, to, to reach out to you and to invite you who are weary and heavy laden to come and lay your burdens before him and receive reconciliation. Are you tired of being tired? Are you tired of running you're tired of carrying all this and not having peace. Jesus said to his disciples in, in John 20 twice, once when there were 10 of them, once when jo Thomas is with them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. I've come in peace. Hear that message this morning. Jesus came in peace so that he might bring you peace with God. But, but, there are others who are not willing to be broken before Jesus and call him Lord and God. And Jesus had very harsh things to say about them. Very harsh things. Jesus is unrelenting in the scriptures. It's saying to the religious crowd that were unfeeling and uncaring and were unbroken before God. He said harsh things. He said, read Matthew 23, seven times he used the word woe, W-O-E, woe. Woe to you, blind guides and hypocrites. Woe to you, snakes. Woe to you, woe. Because religion without substance, without depth, a flat Religion is not religion at all. It is a sham. It is a game. And it is not indicative of real, substantive relationships. I didn't get married to have a flat relationship with Susan. And those of you who have ever fallen in love, you got married because you wanted one of these fully orbed relationships where you could just 
obsess about that person, enjoy that person, and hang out with that person, and lean into that person, and share the rest of your life, and have all this wonderful camaraderie, and so forth. And you could go on and on and on. And yet, people who understand that on a human relationship, they settle for this flat Jesus and call that saving faith. Really? I mean, it's not even intellectually solvent. It can't even be. Thomas teaches us the truth of real saving faith. Sure, for him, it took a little more time. It took a little more experience. We all sort of move at different paces. But remember this. Even this man, even you, are invited to come. And in Thomas's case, Jesus came back. He made, as it were, a concession. He came back eight days later to meet the same guys in the same room because the only difference in eight days was that the guy who was missing is now present. Do you understand that Jesus is calling? He's calling you and me. He's calling us to believe and to just get away from the notion that he doesn't matter and that he's not our prize. Can you say with Thomas today, my Lord and my God? I hope so. I pray so. And I invite you to believe today. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your mercies. They are rich and real and deep. And we pray, Father, that you would grow us to have true saving faith. What a great God you are, a glorious God, our God, my Lord and my God. Indeed, there is only one Savior, and he is your Son. And we are delighted, Father, to follow him together. Grow us, train us, teach us, and make us true disciples who believe and are willing to go to Jerusalem and die with you. This is the way of God. We love you. We thank you for the promise of eternal life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.